Part two of Prose Romances from the Oxford and Cambridge Magazine by William Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Dream, Oxford and Cambridge Magazine, March eighteen fifty six. I dreamed once that four men sat by the winter fire, talking and telling tales in a house that the wind howled round and one of them, the eldest, said, When I was a boy, before you came to this land, that bar of red sand rock, which makes a fall in our river, had only just been formed, for it used to stand above the river in a great cliff, tunnelled by a cave about midway between the green-growing grass and the green-flowing river, and it fell one night, when you had not yet come to this land, no, nor your father's now concerning this cliff or pike rather for it was a tall slip of rock and not part of a range many strange tales were told and my father used to say that in his time many would have explored that cave either from covetousness expecting to find gold therein or from that love of wonders which most young men have but fear kept them back within the memory of man however some had entered and so men said were never seen on earth again but my father said that the tales told concerning such, very far from deterring him, then quite a youth, from the quest of this cavern, made him all the more earnestly long to go, so that one day, in his fear, my grandfather, to prevent him, stabbed him in the shoulder, so that he was obliged to keep his bed for long, and somehow he never went, and died at last, without ever having seen the inside of the cavern. My father told me many wondrous tales about the place, whereof for a long time I have been able to remember nothing. Yet, by some means or another, a certain story has grown up in my heart, which I will tell you something of, a story which no living creature ever told me, though I do not remember the time when I knew it not. Yes, I will tell you some of it, not all of it, perhaps, but as much as I am allowed to tell. The man stopped and pondered a while, leaning over the fire where the flames slept under the caked coal. He was an old man, and his hair was quite white. He spoke again presently. And I have fancied sometimes that in some way, how I know not, I am mixed up with the strange story I am going to tell you. Again he ceased and gazed at the fire, bending his head down till his beard touched his knees. Then, rousing himself, said in a changed voice, for he had been speaking dreamily hitherto, "'That strange-looking old house that you all know, with the limes and yew-trees before it, and the double line of very old yew-trees leading up from the gateway tower to the porch. You know how no one will live there now, because it is so eerie, and how even that bold bad lord that would come there, with his turbulent followers, was driven out in shame and disgrace by invisible agency.' Well, in times past there dwelt in that house an old grey man, who was lord of that estate, his only daughter, and a young man, a kind of distant cousin of the house, whom the lord had brought up from a boy, as he was quite the orphan of a kinsman who had fallen in combat in his quarrel. Now, as the young knight and the young lady were both beautiful and brave, and loved beauty and good things ardently, it was natural enough that they should discover, as they grew up, that they were in love with one another. 
and afterwards, as they went on loving one another, it was, alas, not unnatural that they should sometimes have half-quarrels, very few and far between, indeed, and slight to lookers-on, even while they lasted, but nevertheless intensely bitter and unhappy to the principal parties thereto. I suppose their love then, whatever it has grown to since, was not so all-absorbing as to merge all differences of opinion and feeling, for again there were such differences then. So, upon a time it happened, just when a great war had arisen, and Lawrence, for that was the knight's name, was sitting and thinking of war, and his departure from home, sitting there, in a very grave, almost a stern mood, that Ella, his betrothed, came in, gay and sprightly in a humour that Lawrence often enough could little understand, and this time liked less than ever. Yet the bare sight of her made him yearn for her full heart, which he was not to have yet. So he caught her by the hand, and tried to draw her down to him, but she let her hand lie loose in his, and did not answer the pressure in which his heart flowed to hers. Then he arose and stood before her, face to face, but she drew back a little. Yet he kissed her on the mouth, and said, though a rising in his throat almost choked his voice, "'Ella, are you sorry that I am going?' "'Yea,' she said, "'and nay, for you will shout my name among the sword-flashes, and you will fight for me.' "'Yes,' he said, "'for love and duty, dearest.' "'For duty, ah? Ah! I think, Lawrence, if it were not for me, you would stay at home and watch the clouds, or sit under the linden-trees, singing dismal love-ditties of your own making, dear knight. Truly, if you turn out a great warrior, I too shall live in fame, for I am certainly the making of your desire to fight.' He let drop his hands from her shoulders, where he had laid them, and said, with a faint flush over his face, "'You wrong me, Ella, for though I have never wished to fight for the mere love of fighting, and though,' and here again he flushed a little, "'and though I am not, I well know, so free of the fear of death as a good man would be, yet for this duty's sake, which is really a higher love, Ella, love of God, I trust I would risk life, nay honour, even if not willingly, yet cheerfully at least. Still duty, duty, she said. You lay, Lawrence, as many people do, most stress on the point where you are weakest. Moreover, those knights who in times past have done wild, mad things, merely at their lady's word, scarcely did so for duty, for they owed their lives to their country, surely, to the cause of good, and should not have risked them for a whim and yet you praised them the other day. Did I? said Lawrence. Well, and in a way they were much to be praised, for even blind love and obedience is well. But reasonable love, reasonable obedience, is so far better as to be almost a different thing. Yet I think if the knights did well partly, the ladies did altogether ill, for if they had faith in their lovers, and did this merely from a mad longing to see them do noble deeds, then had they but little faith in God, who can, and at his good pleasure does, give time and opportunity to every man, if he will but watch for it, to serve him with reasonable service, and gain love and all noble things in greater measure thereby. But if these ladies did as they did, that they might prove their knights, then surely did they lack faith both in God and man. 
i do not think that two friends even could live together on such terms but for lovers ah ella ella why do you look so at me on this day almost the last we shall be together for long ella your face is changed your eyes oh christ help her and me help her good lord lawrence she said speaking quickly and in jerks dare you for my sake sleep this night in the cavern of the red pike for i say to you that faithful or not i doubt your courage but she was startled when she saw him and how the fiery blood rushed up to his forehead then sank to his heart again and his face became as pale as the face of a dead man he looked at her and said yes ella i will go now for what matter where i go he turned and moved toward the door he was almost gone when that evil spirit left her and she cried out aloud passionately eagerly lawrence lawrence come back once more if only to strike me dead with your knightly sword he hesitated wavered turned and in another moment she was lying in his arms weeping into his hair and yet ella the spoken word the thought of our hearts cannot be recalled i must go and go this night too only promise one thing dearest what you are always right love you must promise that if i come not again by to-morrow at moonrise you will go to the red pike and having entered the cavern go where god leads you and seek me and never leave that quest even if it end not but with death lawrence how your heart beats poor heart are you afraid that i shall hesitate to promise to perform that which is the only thing i could do i know i am not worthy to be with you yet i must be with you in body or soul or body and soul will die they sat silent and the birds sang in the garden of lilies beyond then said ella again moreover let us pray to god to give us longer life so that if our natural lives are short for the accomplishment of this quest we may have more yea even many more lives he will my ella said lawrence and i think nay i am sure that our wish will be granted and i too will add a prayer but will ask it very humbly namely that he will give me another chance or more to fight in his cause another life to live instead of this failure let us pray too that we may meet however long the time be before our meeting she said so they knelt down and prayed hand fast locked in hand meantime and afterwards they sat in that chamber facing the east hard by the garden of lilies and the sun fell from his noontide light gradually lengthening the shadows and when he sank below the skyline all the sky was faint tender crimson on a ground of blue the crimson faded too and the moon began to rise but when her golden rim first showed over the wooded hills lawrence arose they kissed one long trembling kiss and then he went and armed himself and their lips did not meet again after that for such a long long time so many weary years for he had said ella watch me from the porch but touch me not again at this time only when the moon shows level with the lily heads go into the porch and watch me from thence and he was gone you might have heard her heart beating while the moon very slowly rose till it shone through the rose-covered trellises 
level with the lily-heads. Then she went to the porch and stood there. And she saw him walking down toward the gateway tower, clad in his mail coat with a bright crestless helmet on his head, and his trenchant sword newly grinded girt to his side. And she watched him going between the yew-trees, which began to throw shadows from the shining of the harvest moon. She stood there, in the porch, and round by the corners of the eaves of it, looked down towards her, and the inside of the porch, two serpent dragons, carved in stone, and on their scales and about their leering eyes grew the yellow lichen. She shuddered as she saw them stare at her, and drew closer toward the half-open door she standing there clothed in white from her throat till over her feet altogether ungirdled and her long yellow hair without plait or band fell down behind and lay along her shoulders quietly because the night was without wind and she too was now standing scarcely moving a muscle she gazed down the line of the yew-trees and watched how as he went for the most part with a firm step he yet shrank somewhat from the shadows of the yews. His long brown hair, flowing downward, swayed with him as he walked, and the golden threads interwoven with it, as the fashion was with the warriors in those days, sparkled out from among it now and then, and the faint far-off moonlight lit up the waves of his mail-coat. He walked fast and was disappearing in the shadows of the trees near the moat, but turned before he was quite lost in them, and waved his ungauntleted hand. Then she heard the challenge of the warder, the falling of the drawbridge, the swing of the heavy wicket-gate on its hinges, and into the brightening lights and deepening shadows of the moonlight, he went from her sight, and she left the porch and went to the chapel, all that night praying earnestly there but he came not back again all the next day. And Ella wandered about that house, pale and fretting her heart away. So when night came, and the moon, she arrayed herself in that same raiment that she had worn on the night before, and went toward the river and the red pike. The broad moon shone right over it by the time she came to the river. The pike rose up from the other side, and she thought at first that she would have to go back again, cross over the bridge, and so get to it. But glancing down on the river, just as she turned, she saw a little boat, fairly gilt and painted, and with a long slender paddle in it, lying on the water, stretching out its silken painter as the stream drew it downwards. She entered it, and taking the paddle, made for the other side, the moon meanwhile turning the eddies to silver over the dark green water. She landed beneath the shadow of that great pile of sandstone, where the grass grew green, and the flowers sprung fair right up to the foot of the bare barren rock. It was cut in many steps till it reached the cave, which was overhung by creepers and matted grass. The stream swept the boat downwards, and Ella, her heart beating so as almost to stop her breath, mounted the steps slowly, slowly, she reached at last the platform below the cave, and turning, gave a long gaze at the moonlit country. Her last, she said, 
Then she moved, and the cave hid her as the water of the warm seas close over the pearl-diver. Just so in the night before had it hidden Lawrence, and they never came back, they too. Never, the people say. I wonder what their love has grown to now. Ah, they love, I know, but cannot find each other yet. I wonder if they ever will. So spoke Hugh the white-haired, but he who sat over against him, a soldier as it seemed, black-bearded with wild grey eyes that his great brows hung over far. He, while the others sat still, awed by some vague sense of spirits being very near them. This man, Giles, cried out, Never! Old Hugh, it is not so. Speak. I cannot tell you how it happened, but I know it was not so. Not so. Speak, quick, Hugh. Tell us all, all. Wait a little, my son, wait, said Hugh. The people indeed said they never came back again at all. But I, ah, the time is long past over. So he was silent and sank his head on his breast, though his old thin lips moved, as if he talked softly to himself, and the light of past days flickered in his eyes. Meanwhile Giles sat with his hands clasped finger over finger tightly till the knuckles whitened, his lips were pressed firmly together, his breast heaved as though it would burst, as though it must be rid of its secret. Suddenly he sprang up, and in a voice that was a solemn chant, began, In full daylight, long ago, on a slumberously wrathful, thunderous afternoon of summer. Then across his chant ran the old man's shrill voice, On an October day, packed close with heavy-lying mist, which was more than mere autumn mist. The solemn stately chanting dropped. The shrill voice went on. Giles sank down again, and Hugh, standing there, swaying to and fro, to the measuring ringing of his own shrill voice, his long beard moving with him, said, On such a day, warm and stifling, so that no one could scarcely breathe, even down by the seashore, I went from bed to bed in the hospital of the pest-laden city, with my soothing draughts and medicines and there went with me a holy woman, her face pale with much watching. Yet, I think, even without those same desolate, lonely watchings, her face would still have been pale. She was not beautiful, her face being somewhat peevish-looking, apt she seemed to be made angry by trifles, and even on her errand of mercy she spoke roughly to those she tended. No, she was not beautiful, yet I could not help gazing at her, for her eyes were very beautiful, and looked out from her ugly face as a fair maiden might look from a grim prison between the window-bars of it. So, going through that hospital, I came to a bed at last, whereon lay one who had not been struck down by fever or plague, but had been smitten through the body with a sword by certain robbers, so that he had narrowly escaped death. Huge of frame, with stern, suffering face, he lay there, and I came to him, and asked him of his hurt, and how he fared, while the day grew slowly toward even, in that pest-chamber, looking toward the west. The sister came to him soon, and knelt down by his bedside to tend him. O oh, Christ! As the sun went down on that dim, misty day, the clouds and the thickly packed mist cleared off to let him shine on us 
on that chamber of woes and bitter and purifying tears and the sunlight wrapped those two the sick man and the ministering woman shone on them changed changed utterly good lord how was i struck dumb nay almost blinded by that change for there yes there while no man but i wondered there instead of the unloving nurse knelt a wonderfully beautiful maiden clothed all in white and with long golden hair down her back tenderly she gazed at the wounded man as her hands were put about his head lifting it up from the pillow but a very little and he no longer the grim strong wounded man but fair and in the first bloom of youth a bright polished helmet crowned his head a mail coat flowed over his breast and his hair streamed down long from his head while from among it here and there shone out threads of gold so they spake thus in a quiet tone body and soul together again ella love how long will it be now before the last time of all long she said but the years pass talk no more dearest but let us think only for the time is short and our bodies can call up memories change love to better even than it was in the old time silence so while you might count a hundred then with a great sigh farewell ella for long farewell lawrence and the sun sank and all was as before but i stood at the foot of the bed pondering till the sister coming to me said master physician this is no time for dreaming act the patients are waiting the fell sickness grows worse in this hot close air feel and she swung open the casement the outer air is no fresher than the air inside the wind blows dead toward the west coming from the stagnant marshes the sea is like a stagnant pool too you can scarce hear the sound of the long low surge breaking i turned from her and went up to the sick man and said sir knight in spite of all the sickness about you you yourself better strangely and another month will see you with your sword girt to your side again thanks kind master hugh he said but impatiently as if his mind were on other things and he turned in his bed away from me restlessly until late that night i ministered to the sick in that hospital but when i went away i walked down to the sea and paced there to and fro over the hard sand and the moon showed bloody with the hot mist which the sea would not take on its bosom though the dull east wind blew it onward continually i walked there pondering till a noise from over the sea made me turn and look that way what was that coming over the sea laus deo the west wind hurrah i feel the joy i felt then over again now in all its intensity how came it over the sea first far out to sea so that it was only just visible under the red gleaming moonlight far out to sea while the mists above grew troubled and wavered a long bar of white it grew nearer quickly it rushed on toward me fearfully fast its gathered form strange misty intricate form the ravelled foam of the green sea 
then oh hurrah i was wrapped in it the cold salt spray drenched with it blinded by it and when i could see again i saw the great green waves rising nodding and breaking all coming on together and over them from wave to wave leapt the joyous west wind and the mist and the play-clouds were sweeping back eastward in wild swirls and right away were they swept at last till they brooded over the face of the dismal stagnant meres many miles away from our fair city and there they pondered wrathfully on their defeat but somehow my life changed from the time when i beheld the two lovers and i grew old quickly he ceased then after a short silence said again and that was long ago very long ago i know not when it happened so he sank back again and for a while no one spoke till giles said at last once in full daylight i saw a vision while i was walking while the eyes of men were upon me long ago on the afternoon of a thunderous summer day i sat alone in my fair garden near the city for on that day a mighty reward was to be given to the brave man who had saved us all leading us so mightily in that battle a few days back now the very queen the lady of the land whom all men reverenced almost as the virgin mother so kind and good and beautiful she was was to crown him with flowers and gird a sword about him after the te deum had been sung for the victory and almost all the city were at that time either in the church or hard by it or else were by the hill that was near the river where the crowning was to be but i sat alone in the garden of my house as i said sat grieving for the loss of my brave brother who was slain by my side in that same fight i sat beneath an elm-tree and as i sat and pondered on that still windless day i heard suddenly a breath of air rustle through the boughs of the elm i looked up and my heart almost stopped beating i knew not why as i watched the path of that breeze over the bowing lilies and the rushes by the fountain but when i looked to the place whence the breeze had come i became all at once aware of an appearance that told me why my heart stopped beating ah there they were those two whom before i had but seen in dreams by night now before my waking eyes in broad daylight one a knight for so he seemed with long hair mingled with golden threads flowing over his mail-coat and a bright crestless helmet on his head his face sad-looking but calm and by his side but not touching him walked a wondrously fair maiden clad in white her eyelids just shadowing her blue eyes her arms and hands seeming to float along with her as she moved on quickly yet very softly great rest on them both though sorrow gleamed through it when they came opposite to where i stood these two stopped for a while being in no wise shadowy as i have heard men say go sar but clear and distinct they stopped close by me as i stood motionless unable to pray they turned to each other face to face and the maiden said love for this last true meeting before the end of all we need a witness let this man softened by sorrow even as we are go with us i never heard such music as her words were though i used to wonder when i was young whether the angels in heaven sung better than the choristers sang in our church 
and though even then the sound of the triumphant hymn came up to me in a breath of wind and floated round me making dreams in that moment of awe and great dread of the long past days in that old church of her who lay under the pavement of it whose sweet voice once once long ago once only to me yet i shall see her again he became silent as he said this and no man cared to break in upon his thoughts seeing the choking movement in his throat the fierce clenching of hand and foot the stiffening of the muscles all over him but soon with an upward jerk of his head he threw back the long elf locks that had fallen over his eyes while his head was bent down and went on as before the knight passed his hand across his brow as if to clear away some mist that had gathered there and said in a deep murmurous voice why the last time dearest why the last time know you not how long a time remains yet the old man came last night to the ivory house and told me it would be a hundred years ay more before the happy end so long she said so long ah love what things words are yet this is the last time alas alas for the weary years my words my sin oh love it is very terrible he said i could almost weep old though i am and grown cold with dwelling in the ivory house oh ella if you only knew how cold it is there in the starry nights when the north wind is stirring and there is no fair colour there naught but the white ivory with one narrow line of gleaming gold over every window and a fathom's breadth of burnished gold behind the throne ella it was scarce well done of you to send me to the ivory house is it so cold love she said i knew it's not forgive me but as to the matter of a witness some one we must have and why not this man rather old hugh he said or cuthbert his father they have both been witnesses before cuthbert said the maiden solemnly has been dead twenty years hugh died last night now as giles said these words carelessly as though not heeding them particularly a cold sickening shudder ran through the other two men but he noted it not and went on this man then be it said the knight and therewith they turned again and moved on side by side as before nor said they any word to me and yet i could not help following them and we three moved on together and soon i saw that my nature was changed and that i was invisible for the time for though the sun was high i cast no shadow neither did any man that we passed notice us as we made toward the hill by the riverside and by the time we came there the queen was sitting at the top of it under a throne of purple and gold with a great band of knights gloriously armed on either side of her and their many banners floated over them then i felt that those two had left me and that my own right visible nature was returned yet still did i feel strange and as if i belong not wholly to this earth and i heard one say in a low voice to his fellow see sir giles is here after all yet how came he here and why is he not in armour among the noble knights yonder he who fought so well how wild he looks too poor knight said the other he is distraught with the loss of his brother let him be and see here comes the noble stranger knight our deliverer as he spoke 
we heard a great sound of trumpets and therewithal a long line of knights on foot wound up the hill towards the throne and the queen rose up and the people shouted and at the end of all the procession went slowly and majestically the stranger knight a man of noble presence he was calm and graceful to look on grandly he went amid the gleaming of their golden armour himself clad in the rent mail and tattered surcoat he had worn on that battle-day bareheaded too for in that fierce fight in the thickest of it just where he rallied our men one smote off his helmet and another coming from behind would have slayed him but that my lance bit into his breast so when they had come within some twenty paces of the throne the rest halted and he went up by himself toward the queen and she taking the golden-hilted sword in her left hand with her right hand caught him by the wrist when he would have knelt to her and held him so tremblingly and cried out no no thou noblest of all knights kneel not to me have we not heard of thee even before thou camest hither how many widows bless thee how many orphans pray for thee how many happy ones that would be widows and orphans but for thee sing to their children sing to their sisters of thy flashing sword and the hearts that guides it and now o noble one thou hast done the very noblest deed of all for thou hast kept grown men from weeping shameful tears o oh, truly the greatest i can do for thee is very little yet see this sword golden hilted and the stones flash out from it then she hung it round him and see this wreath of lilies and roses for thy head lilies no whiter than thy pure heart roses no tenderer than thy true love and here before all these my subjects i fold thee noblest in my arms so so ay truly it was strange enough those two were together again not the queen and the stranger knight but the young seeming knight and the maiden i had seen in the garden to my eyes they clung together there though they say that to the eyes of all else it was but for a moment that the queen held both his hands in hers to me also amid the shouting of the multitude came an undercurrent of happy song oh truly very truly my noblest a hundred years will not be long after this hush ella dearest for talking makes the time speed think only pressed close to each other as i saw it their bosoms heaved but i looked away alas when i looked again i saw nothing but the stately stranger knight descending hand in hand with the queen flushed with joy and triumph and the people scattering flowers before them and that was long ago very long ago so he ceased then osric one of the two younger men who had been sitting in awestruck silence all this time said with eyes that dared not meet giles in a terrified half-whisper as though he meant not to speak how long giles turned round and looked him full in the face till he dragged his eyes up to his own then said more than a hundred years ago so they all sat silent listening to the roar of the south-west wind and it blew the window so that they rocked in their frames then suddenly as they sat thus came a knock at the door of the house so hugh bowed his head to osric to signify that he should go and open the door 
so he arose trembling and went and as he opened the door the wind blew hard against him and blew something white against his face then blew it away again and his face was blanched even to his lips but he plucking up heart of grace looked out and there he saw standing with her face upturned in speech to him a wonderfully beautiful woman clothed from her throat till over her feet in long white raiment ungirt unbroidered and with a long veil that was thrown off from her face and hung from her head streaming out in the blast of the wind which veil was what had struck against his face beneath her veil her golden hair streamed out too and with the veil so that it touched his face now and then she was very fair but she did not look young either because of her statue-like features she spoke to him slowly and queenly i pray you give me shelter in your house for an hour that i may rest and so go on my journey again he was too much terrified to answer in words and so only bowed his head and she swept past him in stately wise to the room where the others sat and he followed her trembling a cold shiver ran through the other men when she entered and bowed low to them and they turned deadly pale but dared not move and there she sat while they gazed at her sitting there and wondering at her beauty which seemed to grow every minute though she was plainly not young oh no but rather very very old who could say how old there she sat and her long long hair swept down in one curve from her head and just touched the floor her face had the tokens of a deep sorrow on it ah a mighty sorrow yet not so mighty as that it might mar her ineffable loveliness that sorrow mark seemed to gather too and at last the gloriously slow music of her words flowed from her lips friends has one with the appearance of a youth come here lately one with long brown hair interwoven with threads of gold flowing down from out of his polished steel helmet with dark blue eyes and high white forehead and a mail coat over his breast where the light and shadow lie in waves as he moves have you seen such an one very beautiful then with all as they shook their heads fearfully in answer a great sigh rose up from her heart and she said then i must go away again presently and yet i thought it was the last night of all and so she sat a while with her head resting on her hand after she arose as if about to go and turned her glorious head round to thank the master of the house and they strangely enough though they were terrified at her presence were yet grieved when they saw that she was going just then the wind rose higher than ever before yet through the roar of it they could all hear plainly a knocking at the door again so the lady stopped when she heard it and turning looked full in the face of herman the youngest who thereupon being constrained by that look rose and went to the door and as before with osric so now the wind blew strong against him and it blew into his face so as to blind him tresses of soft brown hair mingled with glittering threads of gold and blinded so 
he heard someone ask him musically, solemnly, if a lady with golden hair and white raiment was in that house. So Herman, not answering in words, because of his awe and fear, merely bowed his head. Then he was ware of someone in bright armour passing him, for the gleam of it was all about him, for as yet he could not see clearly, being blinded by the hair that had floated about him. But presently he followed him into the room, and there stood such an one as the lady had described. The wavering flame of the light gleamed from his polished helmet, touched the golden threads that mingled with his hair, ran along the rings of his mail. They stood opposite to each other for a little, he and the lady, as if they were somewhat shy of each other after their parting of a hundred years, in spite of the love which they had for each other. At last he made one step, and took off his gleaming helmet, laid it down softly, then spread abroad his arms, and she came to him, and they were clasped together, her head lying over his shoulder, and the four men gazed, quite awestruck. And as they gazed, the bells of the church began to ring, for it was New Year's Eve, and still they clung together, and the bells rang on, and the old year died. And there, beneath the eyes of those four men, the lovers slowly faded away into a heap of snow-white ashes. Then the four men kneeled down and prayed, and the next day they went to the priest, and told him all that had happened. So the people took those ashes and buried them in their church, in a marble tomb, and above it they caused to be carved their figures, lying with clasped hands, and on the sides of it the history of the cave in the red pike. And in my dream I saw the moon shining on the tomb, throwing fair colours on it from the painted glass, till a sound of music rose, deepened and fainted. Then I woke. No memory labours longer from the deep gold mines of thought to lift the hidden ore that glimpses, moving up, than I from sleep to gather and tell o'er each little sound and sight. End of a Dream by William Morris End of Part 2